You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So this week, uh, we are starting chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, but we are still in the same train of thought that we saw last week at the end of chapter 3. Uh, last week, Pastor Kevin explained to us from chapter 3, verse 15, that the church is meant to be the pillar and buttress of truth. The Apostle Paul is giving us this image there of upholding and defending the household of God, the church of the living God, the disciples of Jesus who are assembled together in local churches. Our mission is both to advance the gospel and to defend the gospel, which is also called the truth. The gospel is the truth, as in the gospel is the right vision of reality. The gospel is the truest, most ultimate depiction of what is most real. God made you for himself, but you are separated from God because of your sins, but Jesus came and died to bring you back to God. That is the gospel that we, the church, together advance and Defend. That is our mission. And then Paul here in chapter 4, he continues this same train of thought to explain to us the environment of our mission. Categorically, Paul shows us two things. He, he shows us that the environment of our mission is both hostile and wonderful. There's something very negative going on, and there's something very positive going on. And our faithfulness to the mission means that we need to know what that is. So when it comes to the atmosphere of our mission, when it comes to the context of our mission, when it comes to, I like the word environment of our mission, when it comes to the environment of our mission, there are three things we learn in these verses. All right, number one, we learn that people depart from the faith through false teaching. Number two, we learn that false teaching distorts God's design. And number three, we learn that God's design is for Christians to sanctify the goodness of this world in view of the next. That threefold, threefold environment there is the environment of our mission. And we're going to look at each one, but first let's pray again together. Our Father, have mercy on us, more mercy on us, we ask in this moment. Your word is open before us, and so we ask, open our hearts to your word. Speak to us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so three points, starting with the first one. Number one, people depart from the faith through false teaching. This is in verses one and two. Look at the first part of verse one. Paul begins, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And that's a a simple sentence from the apostle Paul, but it's a, a broad summary of the situation. Overall, the environment of gospel advance is gospel rejection. As the good news of Jesus is being proclaimed and people are coming to faith, other people are departing from faith. That's that's the 
environment. That's what's going on. And Paul says it's something that the Spirit expressly says about later times. And so when he says later times here in 1 Timothy 4, he, he means our current times. Often in the New Testament, when we see phrases like later times or last days, those phrases are talking about now. They're talking about the current age that we're in right now in history. After Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended, before Jesus returns, this in-between time that we live in is called the last days. We are in the later times. And in these later times, in these current later times, people are departing from the faith just like the Spirit foretold. There has been a prophecy of apostasy. And so we should ask, when did that happen? How did Paul hear about that? If the Spirit expressly said that this would happen, when was that? And I think that Paul is talking here about the teachings of Jesus. Because in the Gospels, in his teaching, Jesus says that people will fall away. In Matthew 24, Verses 10 and 11, Jesus is, is speaking about, he's talking about a future time, and he says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He says the same thing in Mark 13. He says similar things in Luke 7 and Luke 17. And then, of course, there's always Judas. We see in the Gospels, Jesus in the Gospels, he shows us that apostasy is a real thing. Jesus warns us in the Gospels, in his teaching about apostasy. In his teaching, Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, foretold about apostasy. And Paul says that time is now. The falling away, the departing from the faith is happening now. But how is it happening, okay? How does this happen? Look at verse one. Some would depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, that's demonic forces, verse two, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, that's false teachers. So people depart from the faith by demonic forces working through false teachers. Everybody see that in verses one and two there? Show of hands. You got that? Very clear? Okay. I'm about to tell you something that's really gross, okay? Here it is. There are people who have walked away from the gospel and people who are right now on the brink of walking away from the gospel because of Satan. It is the work of the devil to lead people astray. That is the goal of demonic forces. And those demonic forces, those deceitful spirits work through deceitful people. Satan is the father of lies and he does his work through people who lie. 
Paul wants Timothy to know that here. And he says it again in places like 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says there that, that false teachers or opponents of the truth have been captured by Satan to do his will, which is to deceive. So Satan is ultimately behind apostasy, but he is working through false teachers who Paul calls liars. They're liars. They are liars whose conscience has been seared, which means that the deception is so deep that they have even deceived themselves. There's this, this line I remember in John Milton's Paradise Loss where he poetically explains that what fuels the work of Satan is that he has fooled himself into thinking that his cause is never lost. Does that make sense? Like the deception is so deep. Satan has deceived himself into thinking that he can actually overthrow God. And there are demonic forces at work in this world right now who believe the same things. The deception is at the core. And that deception decays into more deceit. There are all kinds of things in life that we fear. There are all kinds of things in life that that we should be afraid of. There, there, there are all kinds of things in life that we consider to be challenging, right? We, we all have adversity. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says in John 16, 33. But I, I want to tell you that the greatest enemy in your life, the greatest enemy in your life is lies. And lies come from Satan. The lies of Satan are what plunged our world into the curse of sin. Going back to Genesis 3 and even before, lies are your greatest enemy. And it's not just the lies that people will tell you. It's not the lies that you might read online or in the media, but your most consistent enemy is the lies you tell yourself about God. Your most consistent enemy, your worst enemy in this life of adversity, your worst enemy are the lies you tell yourself about God. And lies about God are everywhere. Everywhere. I just was talking to my grandmother, my Mima, a few weeks ago in North Carolina. And she is in her mid-80s. She is a saint. The woman is a godly, godly woman who has served her local church for 60 years plus. I mean, she's an amazing Woman, And she's now at the age where because of health concerns, she's not able to go to worship on Sunday mornings, which means on Sunday mornings, she takes the, you know, she flips through the channels and she's telling me, I'm afraid I'm going to see something wrong. All these, all these channels, all this teaching, I'm afraid I'm going to look at something wrong. 
So what does she do? She has her Bible. She looks for the Bible. She knows, my Mima knows that lies about God are everywhere in this world. That is the environment of our mission. We are not in neutral territory. The later days, our current times, is one swarming with opposition against the church. Satan hates the church. Satan hates your family. Satan hates Christians. Satan hates those who are on the brink of becoming Christians. That is the the air. That is in the air of this world. That's what Paul says. Paul says we're up against this in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Look, church, we are behind enemy lines in this world. We are advancing and defending the gospel in a world of deceit. It's a world hostile to truth and people are being led astray. The environment of our mission is one where people depart from the faith through false teaching. That's verses one and two. Number two, false teaching distorts God's design. All right, see this in verse three there. I told you this passage had something negative going on, which we just saw. But it also has something very positive going on. And verse 3 is kind of like the hinge between those two. Verse 3 is the hinge that turns from the positive, from the negative to the positive. And it, it, it starts in verse 3 with Paul telling us a little more about these false teachers, okay? False teachers throughout history are all the same in that they oppose the truth of God, okay? All false teachers are enemies of the gospel, but they're all different in the ways that they oppose the truth. And in Ephesus, at the time when Paul wrote this to Timothy, there was a false teaching related to creation and how Christians interact with creation. And this heresy um, has different names, uh, different strands. Um, We see it, it shows up probably in Colossians 2, and it's referred to in other places in the New Testament. But here in 1 Timothy 4, we know that this heresy centered on a required rejection of marriage and certain foods. All right, look at verse 3. These false teachers, these liars who had the, the seared conscience, verse 2, they are those, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. And when Paul says marriage, he's not just talking about the ceremony where a man and woman become married, right? The false teachers are not saying no more weddings. The issue here is the union between a man and woman that implies the act of marriage, okay? He's talking about sex here. The false teachers are most likely here forbidding marriage for the physiological union that happens in marriage, and also there are certain foods you can't eat. That's what's being said here. The issue is asceticism. These false teachers are forcing a denial of creation that requires marital celibacy and dietary restrictions, okay? It's wrong because it distorts God's design. It's a direct attack 
on God's design because it says that something God made for good is actually bad. These false teachers are forcing a rejection of things. Here's the hinge. Here's the hinge, okay, in verse 3. These false teachers are forcing a rejection of things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And we're going to talk more about that, but it's important that we see and that we're clear about the real issue here. The problem is not marital celibacy and diet. There are times when both of those are okay if... The former is agreed upon and limited, see 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And if the latter is for health reasons, 1 Timothy 5, 23. There are abnormal situations and moments in life when we might need to abstain from these gifts. But the issue with the false teachers is that they, re, they, they forced this rejection as a distortion of God's purpose. The false teachers here are not advocating a prudential application of Christian liberty, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans 14. Instead, these false teachers are teaching the absolute rejection of marriage and foods because they said they were bad, although God said they were good. That's the issue. These false teachers contradicted and defied the word of God and the purpose of God. The false teachers distorted God's design. And that now brings us to the positive, okay? The hinge here in verse 3 opens up for us the question, well, what actually is God's design? If they distort God's design, what is God's purpose in creation? What is God's design in creation? And this is the third and final point, okay? God's design for Christians is to sanctify the goodness of this world in view of the next world. We see that in the last part of verse three and in verses four and five. Remember now, Paul's talking about the environment of the church's mission. This is, this is the environment that has something negative going on. There's false teaching, there's apostasy. We've seen that. But there's also something positive happening. The environment of our mission is also a world that God created good and a world that God created for us. I think verses three to five are the most important part of this passage because of the theology it gives us here. There are three things, these are subpoints I want us to see, okay? The first is that God created marriage and food for Christians. Look again at verse three. Paul's talking about marriage, marital intimacy. He's talking about food. And he says, God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, I think that that what Paul says here about marriage 
and food, I think it applies to all of God's gifts in creation, okay? It applies to it all. But for the sake of example, let's just focus here on food, okay? We're gonna focus on food. There, there are two, all the parents are like, yeah, so I'm focusing on food. Um, um, we could talk about the other stuff later. Um, two details here, okay? There are those for whom God created food, and then there's the heart posture of how those people receive the food, okay? For whom food is for, for whom the food is created for, and then how we receive. We're gonna look at the first thing first, okay? Um, Paul says, this is very clear. Paul says, it is to be received by those who believe and know the truth. Paul is talking about Christians here. This is, this, these are those who, who believe the gospel. These are those who know the gospel. It's straightforward here what Paul is saying. Food is meant to be received by Christians. Paul says that God created food for Christians. So take ice cream, for example, okay? It's almost springtime, summertime, ice cream. I don't eat a lot of ice cream. I don't, I don't eat a lot of ice cream. Um, but every now and then, I will have a scoop of Ben, ben and Jerry's. Milk and cookies or chocolate fudge brownie or the Tonight Dough. Americone Dream is also very good. Chocolate chip, cookie batter, uh, cookie dough is also very, very good. And... Here's the thing with ice cream, okay? Anybody can go to the grocery store after our service, go to the grocery store and get any of those. I start with the Maricone Dream. Go to the grocery store. Anybody, anybody can go buy that ice cream from the grocery store. Anybody can eat ice cream. It is part of God's common benevolence toward mankind. Anybody can eat ice cream. And yet... According to the Bible, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, ice cream is actually for Christians. Ice cream is meant to be received by Christians. And so I'm eating ice cream. I'm, I'm eating milk and cookies. Just a half a cup, right? Just a half a cup. You guys seen the Brian Reagan skit on that? Google it. I'm eating my half a cup of ice cream, okay? And I'm thinking, as I'm holding this spoon, God made this for me. Like the whole thing. The milk in this ice cream is for me. The cow who made the milk, the farm where the cow lived, the grain that the cow ate, the farmer who tended the whole thing, the truck driver who took the milk from the farm and drove it over to Ben and Jerry. And then the scientist who threw in the other good stuff and then the, the little pint package. You got to get the little pint ones, the small ones. 
the package that held it all is for me. Then the, the truck driver who took the package and drove it over to the grocery store. And then the person in the grocery store who opened up the freezer and, and put the package on the shelf. And then the cashier who checked me out of line as I was leaving with the ice cream. There have been 145 steps behind this spoon. I wish I had a spoon. 145 steps behind this spoon of ice cream. And God did it for me. God means for me to receive this ice cream. That's verse three. That's verse three. And then there's more. It's not just that it's to be received by Christians. It is to be received with thanksgiving. This is the second thing. God intends, through creation, God intends the thanksgiving of Christians. This is the heart posture, okay? There's the for whom God created food and other good things. And then there's the heart posture of how we receive the food. These are two sides of the same coin. It's not enough to know that ice cream is for you. It's that ice cream is for you to give thanks. Good things in creation are purposed by God for your thanksgiving. And that's actually what separates humanity into two types of people. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how creation communicates the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But when it comes to the unrighteous, when it comes to the ungodly, when it comes to those who reject God, Paul says, verse 21, for although they knew God, which means although they saw the glory of God in creation, although they tasted ice cream, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So God's glory is seen in creation, everybody sees it. It's just that some do not give thanks for it and others do. The unrighteous do not give thanks. The righteous do give thanks. Those held captive to sin and idolatry do not give thanks. Those who believe and know the truth do give thanks because it's meant for our thankfulness. I've been thinking a lot lately about, about sunshine. And I wrote about this a couple weeks ago. Um, and it's just been on my mind. I've been thinking about it and been talking about it with the kids. And there was one day a couple weeks ago when we were um, on the way to school in the morning. We drive east on the way to school. And there are some mornings when the sun is, is just majestic. It's just the right time in the morning and the sun's coming up. And, and this is one of those mornings when we were driving east and the sun is just shining in my truck. And the kids are with me. And the sun was shining into my truck and it was affecting us. You know, I had to put my visor down a little bit and kind of shield it and we could feel the heat of the sun on our faces. You guys know what that's like, right? You know what that's like. You guys have had the sun shine on you before. You can, you can feel it coming through your car. It was like that that morning, okay? So here it goes. That sunshine is for me. 
Hey, kids, that sunshine right there, kids, the sunshine, the sunshine that's, that's coming into my truck right now, this sunshine that we feel right now, this sunshine, God made that sunshine for us. Not, not just that, God made that sunshine so that right now we would feel it and be thankful. God made the sun to shine in my truck so that right now I would be thankful. Right now, with God's sunshine on my face, the will of God for me is to give thanks. In that moment, there is an attitude, an emotion, a response that God intends for me to have, and it's gratitude. God, thank you, kids, kids. God, thank you. Thank you for the sunshine. Everything else can just stop for a second. Everything else can stop. The stress can stop. The hardships can stop. Suffering will not take this from me. You cannot take this from me. You can't. Suffering will not take this from me because right now the sovereign God of the universe is speaking his son to shine on my face so that I would be thankful. So I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to give thanks. We're going to give thanks. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. Third, Christians add to the goodness of creation. Okay. It's for us, marriage and food. Creation is for us. It's for our thankfulness. And then we add to it, okay? Not just the sunshine, the whole world around us. Look at verse four. Paul says, everything created by God is good. This is going back to Genesis 1. Paul's referring back to Genesis 1 as he often does. He loves Genesis. Paul, the apostle Paul loves Genesis. He would be so happy that we preached in the book of Genesis at this church. He's referring back to Genesis 1. Of course, that's where God says, God's word said of God's creation, it's good. And since it's good, it's not meant to be rejected, but it's meant to be received with thanksgiving. For, verse 5, because, verse 5, it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, made holy is the same word for sanctify. Paul is saying that we as Christians sanctify the goodness of creation by God's word and prayer. And I think that Paul is describing there the practice of receiving with thankfulness. When we receive with thankfulness God's good creation, it means we are applying God's word in fellowship with him, which is what prayer is. When Paul says the word of God here, he means the things that God has said. He's, the, 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 the spoken, the word of God, things that God has said, especially in Genesis 1 when God said creation is good. We sanctify creation by saying of creation what God has said of creation. We pray the word of God over creation. And when we do that, we are adding to it. We are doing something new with it. We are making it not just good, but also 
holy. We make it holy. When we apply the word of God and prayer to creation, it is being consecrated for the ultimate purpose for which God made it. Think about that. There are spoonfuls of ice cream waiting to be sanctified by you and me, half a cup. This is wondrous. This is wondrous. It, it actually correlates, I think, to Adam in creation. In Genesis 2, God employs Adam in the work of creation. Adam is given the task of working and keeping the garden and of naming the animals. And in a similar way, God employs us in the work of the new creation. God has given us the task of sanctifying by his word and prayer the good things he has made as he restores the brokenness of this world to become the new world yet to come. That's the environment of our mission. It's that we have a future. It's that we have a future right now. I want you to know, Christian, you have a future with God. You have a future with God. So we enjoy, we receive with thanksgiving the, thing in, the things in this world in view of that future with God. That's what we're really about, okay? We are really about this future we have with God. I have a friend, a friend who wrote a book about creation and the things of earth. His name rhymes with Roe Jigney. And there's a quote from the things of earth that I just, it, it talks about our future and I think it just says it, it says it best. Half of earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpse city it longs to become. For all its rooted loveliness, the world has no continuing city here. It is an outlandish place, a foreign home, a session in via to a better version of itself. And it is our glory to see it so and thirst until Jerusalem comes home at last. We are given appetites not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and to hunger for the greater world yet to come. The greater world is the world that we're looking to, and it's not a world in Adam. It is a world in Christ. It is a world bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, just like you, Christian, have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we get to have a part. 
this, all this in creation is for those who believe and know the truth, which means it's for those who were dead in their sins and without hope, destined for wrath, just like everybody else, but those for whom Jesus died and was raised. Those for whom the Holy Spirit went to work and made them alive. Those who are themselves in Jesus, a new creation, not because of anything they've done themselves, but because of the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the environment of our mission. Yeah, there are, there, there's negative stuff. There are false teachings. There is apostasy. People are departing from the faith, but also there is this glaring positive. It's that God's design in this world is for Christians to sanctify the goodness of this world in view of the next. And so here we are in this world receiving and giving thanks, receiving and giving thanks, receiving and giving thanks, humbly and happily sanctifying the good of this creation because Jesus has saved us for a better world. That is the root of all gratitude. That is the root of all gratitude, the cross of Jesus Christ, the grace of God poured out for us in the cross of Jesus. And that's what this table's about. The foundation, the root of our gratitude. The only way, we know this, the only way that we can give thanks for bread is to first give thanks for the body of Jesus that was broken for us. The only way that we can truly be thankful for wine is to first be thankful for the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It is the blood of Jesus that has bought for us every joy in the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And here at this table each week, we especially give Jesus thanks for that. At this table, in the bread and cup, we give Jesus thanks for his death, which is the pathway into all other thanksgivings. And so if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if you are one who believe and know the truth, we invite you to participate with us, eat and drink with us. We're gonna serve the bread first, just hold on to it. Then we'll come up and uh, we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.